And we long for that day and we hope in that day and until that day. Our prayer again is that you would be faithful to us to the end, that through our lives, through these gifts, the gospel of King Jesus might be heard and seen here and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do it through us. Do it through our brothers and sisters across this globe to the praise of Jesus' most glorious name. In his name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. We're going to look at this passage this morning to fill in a couple of gaps that uh, Paul left, I guess you could say, in Romans chapter 8 as he talks in Romans chapter 8 about all of these glorious truths, these glorious realities related to our own resurrection, the creation being restored, our being conformed to the image of Christ, being made like him in glory. There are a couple things that Paul leaves out. And those things that he leaves out, because he had other purposes there, he addresses here. He fills in a couple of gaps for us because of the concerns that he has and these questions that these Thessalonian believers had. So please follow along with me as we read together 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the Presbyterians shall rise first. Oh, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I apologize. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this glorious day described here in this passage Thank you for everything that you have packed into these few short verses through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Lord, would you do for us today what Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to do with these words, and that is, would you encourage us? We pray, come by your spirit, take your word, press it into our hearts, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Please do forgive me for that, but there, that's one of the first Christian jokes I ever heard. 
as a uh, as a new believer, someone said to me when this person learned that I was a Presbyterian, said to me, you know, Presbyterians are mentioned in the Bible. And I said, no, I didn't know that. I'm new to the Bible. I don't know anything about the Bible. Tell me where. And this person said, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. So every once in a while it slips out. I suppose it could be said of Methodists. It could be said of Lutherans. It could be said of a whole lot of people. But it was said uh, in jest, of course, about Presbyterians. Um, I have a couple of, well, I have a bunch of authors uh, who are kind of favorite authors. I, I suspect we all do. A couple of my favorite authors are Flannery O'Connor and Wendell Berry. And I like both of them for uh, reasons that actually are, are somewhat similar, even though they're very different. My, my way of summarizing my affection for and attachment to Wendell Berry is simply this. Wendell Berry, as he writes, describes life as I long for it to be, but as it isn't. Wendell Berry has a marvelous way of, of portraying the, the importance of, of people and of place and of permanence, of, of attachment to people and, and attachment to place. And, and when you read Wendell Berry, you just sort of think to yourself, you know, that's the way life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be like that. That's not perfect. It's, it's liberally sprinkled is, is Wendell Berry's fiction with sadness and grief and loss. But still in the midst of it, there is this sense that this really is the way things are supposed to be. And then when I read Flannery O'Connor, it's, it's sort of the other way around. When I read Flannery O'Connor's short stories, I think to myself, you know, this is, this is kind of the way life is. It's broken. It's damaged. It's peppered with the acid rain of sin and its effects. And it's not the way I want life to be. And I find myself to attracted to both of them because in their respective ways, what they do is point me beyond myself. They point me beyond my current life, my current experience. They have a way of tapping into that thing that is deep in my heart and it's deep in the heart of every human being. And it is this deep and abiding and compelling longing for life to be different for life to be whole, for things to be the way they're supposed to be. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 as he, as he makes his way through this incredible letter and, and gets into chapter 8 and, and begins to unpack these things that are just incredibly comforting, deeply comforting to every Christian, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that, 
that at the end of the chapter, nothing in all of the creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus ever again. Why? Because you are in Christ. If you have come to Christ, if you've, if you've acknowledged that you are a sinner, really and truly before a holy God, acknowledge that you are a sinner and you've embraced Jesus as the one solution to the problem of your guilt and your shame and your brokenness and your sin and you've received him, what God has done has he's inserted you into Christ. You have a new environment. There's a new world world in which you live. It's not so much that Christ is in you, although that language is used in the New Testament. You know if you've been around here for a while that more than 150 times Paul describes us being in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. We've been transferred from darkness to light. We've been delivered from sin and death into life and righteousness in Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, there's nothing that can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ again. And beyond that, not only are you free from the threat of condemnation, not only are you secure in the love of God, not only are you in Christ, but you have been made the daughter of God. You've been made the son of God, the child of the God of heaven and earth. And he loves his kids. And in this passage that we've been looking at, Romans 8, verses 18 and following, Paul tells us that there is a happy ending to this story. And the happy ending to this story is the entire full and complete reconstitution of your broken down humanity. It's complete restoration so that you, having been reconstituted by the power of the resurrection, by the power of the resurrection of Christ, You having been reconstituted, reformed, completely and entirely transformed are now adequately prepared to be clothed and robed in his glory. You will see him because you will be like him. John says to the readers of his first letter in chapter 3. But not only that. The whole of the creation gets freed from its bondage to decay. And a new heaven and a new earth emerge. And you in your reconstituted, glorified body get to dwell forever in the new heaven and the new earth where none, none of what Flannery O'Connor describes in her short stories is ever your experience again. The tears are wiped away. The sadness is gone. Dying and death flee and laughter and joy crown your heads forever. Now the question is, what happens in the in-between? What happens in the in-between? What happens between the here and the now and the there and the then? What happens to your spouse who has died, your friend who has died? What happens to your child who has died? What happens to your parent who has died? That's what Paul addresses in 1 Thessalonians 4. He addresses that question. And he addresses it simply because these Thessalonians 
are asking that question. That's what's reflected in verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others who don't have any hope. We want you to be informed. We don't want you to be in the dark about this. And that's what Paul is about in these verses. He's about telling these Thessalonians what it is that happens when someone who has embraced Christ when someone who has been embraced by Christ dies, what happens? Background for his explanation, for his answer to that question, is back in Genesis, my favorite book of the 66, except for Romans and the Gospel of Mark and the Revelation and the others. But Paul uses language in 1 Thessalonians 4 that really can only be understood against the backdrop of Genesis 2.5. He says three times in 1 Thessalonians 4 in reference to these people who have died that they have fallen asleep. Verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Verse 14, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, We will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What is he talking about? What is the, how are we to understand this? Well, if you look at the passage, you look at it closely, it doesn't require a whole lot of attention. It seems clear, it seems very clear that what Paul is referring to is the bodies, the physical material existence of those who have died. There are some who come at these passages, this passage in particular, but this among others, and understand that what Paul is referring to is soul sleep. No, it isn't. It isn't soul sleep. He is referring to the bodies of those who have departed. Here's what's happened. These, these Thessalonians have heard the gospel. They've, they've heard perhaps Jesus quoted. Maybe Paul or someone else has quoted Jesus himself. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he die, yet shall he live. And They've embraced that gospel of hope, but then having embraced the gospel of hope, as has been true for every one of us in this room, someone we know who is a Christian has died. And what Paul is saying here, what he is referring to, is the bodies of those who have departed. Their bodies are asleep, and they await their resurrection. As Jesus died and was raised, so those who have fallen asleep, like Jesus, will also be raised. And again, the background to understanding this is Genesis. And think back to how it is. This will be a reminder, I suspect, for many of you. But perhaps it's a new piece of information for some of you. You think back to the creation, not chapter 1, but chapter 2. And you have in chapter 2 a description, a narrative account of the creation of the first person, the first human being. That person being Adam. 
Genesis 2.5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, took material stuff, And from that material stuff, somehow fashioned and formed and shaped it into a person. But that material stuff is only half of what a person is. We could, we could camp on this for such a long time. We could, we could talk about things like intelligence and we could talk about things like longing and passion and, and an innate sense of justice and rightness and, and how amazing and fascinating it is that no matter where you go, human beings everywhere honor things like compassion and sacrifice and what is just. There are particular configurations of it. The details of it may shift and change a bit. But at the heart of it, there are these things, these characteristics, these features, not of inanimate dirt formed into the shape of a human being, but the stuff, the stuff that is part and parcel of the spirit, the spiritual. And this dust that is formed by God into this form of a man is then animated by the breath of life. What is a human being? A human being is body and soul. A a human being is the physical and material and the non-material and spiritual. The two elements, the two parts, spirit and body, soul and flesh, make up a human being. And when Paul responds to these believers in Thessalonica to answer this question, what has happened to my husband? What has happened to my wife? What has happened to my child? What has happened to my parent? What has happened to my friend? What is in his mind is the day of creation and what a human being is, that there is a marriage, there is a wonderful union that is effected by the power of God between the physical and material and the spiritual and soulish. And here is what happens at death. What happens at death is what, this is not new with me, I picked it up someplace, maybe it was C.S. Lewis or some other person, but what happens at death is the great divorce. Things that are united, that are designed to be united in perpetuity, that is forever, they are divided, they are torn apart, they are rent asunder. Body and soul, flesh and spirit are not meant to be separated. The man together with his wife were designed body and soul with everything that that means to dwell in that garden. They were designed to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. This is such a beautiful story. They were designed, you remember from last week, to work the garden, that is to tend it, to serve it, to nourish it so that it would flourish. 
they were designed to give birth to little gardeners who would take the beauty of the garden and extend it ever more widely until the beauty of the garden, pulsating with life, filled with the glory of God, extended to the ends of the earth so that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God, body and soul. And what happens as a result of sin, what happens, as Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, sin entered the world and with it death. The final outcome of that is this great divorce, this ripping, this tearing, this rending of things that were designed to be together, but because of sin and death are torn apart. And do you know something? The Bible admonishes us to think about these things. The Bible is so counterintuitive. It is so counter to our culture. The Bible does not want us to stuff vacated bodies into boxes. Slam the lid shut, stick them in the ground, and walk away without reflecting, walk away without being moved. The the most startling words, arguably in the whole of the Bible, are Genesis 5.5. And Adam lived 960 some years, and he died. And the Bible admonishes us, pleads with us to reflect on these things. I haven't done that many right or smart things in 30 plus years in ministry. But on February 2nd, 1986, I did a smart thing. I did a wise thing. It was just a handful of days after January 28th, 1986, when Challenger exploded over the coast of Florida, over the Atlantic Ocean, 73 seconds after liftoff. The smart thing I did was preach from Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 4. Now, Ecclesiastes, friends, is a book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is the wisdom of God for the people of God. And Ecclesiastes, which is the word of God and the wisdom of God and which comes to the people of God for their good, admonishes us to do this. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but 
And doesn't our culture need to hear this? Don't I need to hear this? The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of laughter and gaiety. You hear what Ecclesiastes is saying to us? This great quotation from a book by Peter Kraft. I've read this, I think, before. It's one of those things that should be read again. It's from a book called Christianity for Modern Pagans. Great title. Kraft writes this, Augustine remarks, The parents and relatives always wonder about a new baby, whether he will be happy, healthy, wealthy, wise, virtuous, or long-lived, but never wonder whether he will die. I have a two-month-old granddaughter. I have yet to ask myself the question, when and how will she die? But Ecclesiastes tells me that it is wise for me to ask that about myself and indeed to ask that about my precious granddaughter, Lucy. Because there isn't anything else in your experience of mine that so sets in sharp relief the ultimate issues of life as does death. What happens at death? Body and soul are separated. Adam died. The body sleeps in the dust. What happens to the soul? This is the beautiful thing. Not the most beautiful thing. But this is the beautiful thing that the scriptures make very clear concerning the person who dies in Christ, whose body sleeps in the dust. The other half of who I am, not the real part of me. How many times? How many times have you heard someone standing Next to a coffin, next to the body of a deceased. How many times have you said it yourself? You've said, that is not him. That is not her. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The other half of him, the other part of him, not the better part, not the better half, simply the other half. The Scriptures teach is immediately in the presence of the Savior who has loved that whole person. Died for that person, come into this world to seek that person, to save that person, and to bring that person safely home to the Father. Jesus Many of you have read Keller's book. Jesus is the true elder brother who leaves the safety of home, the security of home, at great cost to himself, secures the eternal well-being of him 
or her. And at death, his soul, her soul, goes immediately into the presence of Christ. That's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. When the thief was rebuking the other one on the cross, Jesus said to him, Luke 23, 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise today. Where was his body? Impaled on a cross, buried in a pauper's grave, unknown to anybody. Where was his soul, the other half of him, in paradise with Jesus? What does Paul say? Philippians 1, 22 and 23. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, to depart and be with Christ. Paul knew. Look, I know you're upset and concerned about the economy. I know you're upset and concerned about the election. I know you're upset and concerned about the future. Those things matter not nearly so much as ultimate and eternal things. And Paul's preference, Paul's preference was to leave the changing of the world to Jesus. Entrusting the changing of the world to Jesus. His preference. Though he knew it was valuable to stay on in the flesh, his preference was to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. To be present with Christ. How about Hebrews 12? Verses 22 and 23. I love this. You ought to take this whole passage this week, beginning at verse 18, and just meditate on it and reflect upon it and understand that these words written 2,000 years ago are true of you. They have application to you if you're a believer this morning. The author writes, verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion. Gee, I wish I could hit the pause button and just stay there for an hour and try to impress upon you the significance of what Paul is saying here, that there is a Zion, but there is a Zion. And it's the Zion that you have come to. And it's the only Zion that matters. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. They're saying, what are you talking about? We're sitting here in North Africa, someplace in Egypt, on wooden benches, in obscurity, being harassed, being oppressed. And you're telling us that we've come to Zion, we've come to the new Jerusalem, we've come to an innumerable company of angels we don't even say see. Yes, you have come to realities that you can't see, but are infinitely more real than the realities you do see. And then he says, 
you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What happens at death? Body and soul are separated. Spirit and flesh are separated. The flesh sleeps in the ground, in the dust. The spirit, the spirit proceeds immediately to this place. There to enjoy incomprehensible joys, peace, rest. That's what happens at death. That's why Paul says that while we grieve, we grieve over this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We grieve over the separation of body and soul. We grieve over the separation that death effects in relationships, in families. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope because this departed one, touching his or her spirit, is present with Jesus, tasting and experiencing, knowing incomprehensible joys. I said this Friday morning at the women's study at the refuge, Every Christian who is really a Christian knows what it is to have communion with the risen Christ. You have those experiences where Jesus seems so real. But they are imperfect and they are interrupted. Your spouses, your family members, Your brothers, your sisters, your children who have departed in Christ are present with him. And please don't be offended if they haven't given you a thought in all of the time that they have been gone. But please also don't do this. Don't think. That your brothers and sisters, your spouses, even your children are running and dancing and singing. Singing, okay, maybe. But running and dancing, not yet. Because they don't have bodies. Their bodies are still in the dust. And what the apostle is telling us here is that a day is coming when Christ who has been raised from death, who has vanquished that enemy, will, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, finally put under his feet the last enemy, and the last enemy is death, not for him, but for you. And when that last enemy is finally vanquished, bodies will come out of the ground. They will be raised from death to life. And what was separated will be reunited. That is what is being described in 1 Thessalonians 4. The resurrection of the body. And listen to how Paul puts it. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Bodies will come out of the grave, and Jesus will bring with him the souls of the departed. 
And he, by his power, will effect a reunion, a remarriage of body and soul, so that body and soul, transformed and glorified, we all will be with him, never to depart from him ever again. And Jesus himself will usher us in to the full enjoyment of the new heaven and the new earth. I wish I could camp on this for 45 minutes, but let's just say this. Let me just put it this way, in a summary sort of way. Jesus doesn't leave us up in the clouds. What you need to have in mind as you think about what is being described here is the return of a conquering king who has vanquished all of his enemies and who is returning to his capital city and the trumpets announce his arrival and as he arrives all of the citizens pour out of the city they come out to greet him and having come out to greet them he leads them back into the city where he now brings peace to his city there is no longer conflict no longer warfare and he the victor king now shares the spoils of his victory with all of his citizens. The king returns in glory, vanquishing the last enemy, raising the dead from the dust, and leading them into the new heaven and the new earth where he there pours out upon them all the spoils of his eternal victory. That's the better thing. The good thing is to depart and be with Christ. But that is not the end. The great end is the return of the king who restores us body and soul, who brings peace and in fulfillment of the promise that he made to his fearful, fearful sheep in Luke chapter 11, pours out upon them all of the blessings and the riches of his kingdom that they might enjoy all of it forever. Paul says, brothers and sisters, I'm saying this to you as Paul said it to them, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with this hope. Because this is your ultimate hope. It's not in this world as currently constituted. It's not some politician. It's not some new scheme. It's not some new medicine. It's not some new psychotherapy. This is your hope. Therefore, encourage one another With these words, death be not proud, for death thou shalt die. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this hope. Thank you that what we have tasted way more than we want, what we will taste way more than we want, 
is not the end. You, Lord Jesus, have vanquished death for yourself. And you will vanquish at your return that same enemy for all who have loved you. Fortify us with this hope, Lord Jesus. As we walk through the rest of the days of our lives in anticipation of that first glory and of that consummate glory, the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. Fortify us with this hope, we pray in your name. Amen.